Greetings. Thank you all for returning to this week's new study episode titled, The Rapture, A Mystery, A New Thing, Part 6. I am Pastor John, welcoming our returning global audience of unchurched, self-study people, as well as those who are part of a church. For anyone looking for greater depths in God's Word with a stronger personal study, we also extend a warm welcome to all our new listeners here for the first time. Thank you all for listening. May you all be blessed of God. Last week was our episode in this larger series titled The Rapture, A Mystery, A New Thing, Part 5, on July 3rd. An important observation from last week. We noticed how two parables are used to make the point of what was already spoken in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 39. The first thing we should notice almost right away is how the coming of Christ, in this case, is written differently than in the book of Revelation. Here in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 39, and further to verse 44, we see parables about a sudden and hidden event of those saved in Christ disappearing from this earth. There is no public return of Christ that is obvious. Yet, in the book of Revelation, we read of a very public and well-seen return of Christ. We read here in the book of Matthew of Christ's own being taken, while the book of Revelation we read of Christ's own being present in heaven. A number of people so large in John's day, there was no way to render the number as well as we could today. This number, as rendered by John, was 10,000 times 10,000 hyphen thousands times thousands. For better accuracy, we conservatively estimated a total number of people that would be in heaven per the book of Revelation comment I just spoke of as 29,190,350,603.25 people. This number is not only a conservative one, but now old. Based on some scripture passages, this number could be as much as twice as big. The book of Matthew tells us, unlike what we read in the book of Revelation and that very publicly seen event of another one so secret, it is known only by... To find out more, listen to our previous episode titled, The Rapture, A Mystery, A New Thing, Part 5. This week, we will continue our examination in 1 Corinthians. The reason being is that there are some Old Testament scripture references. How can that be? References to the rapture, the ascension into heaven of God's people, in the Old Testament? Our first Old Testament reference is found in context in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, which reads, the Lord who commands armies will hold a banquet for all the nations on this mountain. At this banquet there will be plenty of meat and aged wine, tender meat and choicest wine. On this mountain he will swallow up the shroud 
that is over all the peoples, the woven covering that is over all the nations. He will swallow up death permanently. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Indeed, the Lord has announced it. At that time, they will say, Look, here is our God. We waited for him, and he delivered us. Here is the Lord. We waited for him. Let's rejoice and celebrate his deliverance. Our cross-referenced verse is 8 and is what is also said in 1 Corinthians in chapter 50, verses 54 through 55, albeit a bit differently said. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8 reads, He will swallow up death permanently. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Indeed, the Lord has announced it. 1 Corinthians chapter 50, verses 54-55 through 55 reads, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Clearly quoted here in 1 Corinthians, but it is still reiterated while not an exact quote of Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. This is now helping to build continuity of this subject. For we see the same thing spoken in both Isaiah and quoted in the book of Matthew. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, we see further that he will swallow up death in victory, or forever. This is to be understood, not of a spiritual death, which is swallowed up in conversion, and of which those that are quickened shall never die more, nor of the conversion of the Jews, which will be as life from the dead, nor of the civil death of the witnesses, and of their rising, who afterwards will never die more, in that sense, but the corporeal death, this Christ has swallowed up in victory by dying on the cross, both with respect to himself, who will never die more, and with respect to his people, from whom he has abolished it as a penal evil. But it chiefly respects the resurrection state, or the personal coming of Christ, when the dead in him shall rise first, and shall never die more. There will be no more death, neither corporeal, spiritual, nor eternal to them. On them death shall have no power in any shape, and then will this saying be brought about or fulfilled, as the Apostle has interpreted it, from the New John Gill's exposition of the entire Bible. Further, quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, in support of the resurrection, swallow up in victory, completely and permanently abolish. From Robert Jameson, A.R. Fawcett, and David Brown Commentary, Critical and Explanatory on the Whole Bible, 1871. We should also note, He, Christ, will by His death destroy the power of death, take away the sting of the first death, 
and prevent the second in victory, unto victory, so as to overcome it perfectly, which complete victory Christ has already purchased for and will in due time actually confer upon his people. From John Wesley's Notes on the Bible. That is a lot of cross-reference commentary, so let's examine it and make better sense of it. First, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, this statement, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Then in cross-reference, in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, we read, He will swallow up death permanently. Notice the formatting here. In the Old Testament, it is spoken of as a future event. The statement opens with, He will. Then, the New Testament says, Death has. Folks, the New Testament passage opens in past tense, as if it has already happened. Now, notice this. The book of Isaiah was written approximately in the years 700 to 681 B.C., approximately 19 years total. Again, 1 Corinthians was written approximately in 55 A.D. That is a gap between these two books of 736 years. Proof that Isaiah and Paul did not even know each other personally. You have to go back much further in time to find anyone who lived 700 years or more. At this point in time, Isaiah died well before Paul was even born. So, how did these two men know so soundly what God intends to do at the ending of things as we presently know them? And remember, John knew too. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 50, verse 55, we read, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, we also read, He will swallow up death permanently. Both passages speak of a permanent finish. Now, with regard to those not saved in Christ who have chosen to live life as they choose and without God, we read the result of that thinking when the option to choose Christ is no longer available. Please note that Sheol is another name for what we today call hell. We read, Will I deliver them from the power of Sheol? No, I will not. Will I redeem them from death? No, I will not. O death, bring on your plagues. O Sheol, bring on your destruction. My eyes will not show any compassion. From Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. This is what is spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 50, verse 55, when the questions are asked about victory and the sting of death. Death is not victory since victory is found in the salvation of Jesus Christ. There is no sting in victory. So, 
death is what carries the sting said here in Scripture. Today, we associate the word sting with an insect bite, like a bee sting. However, the word sting in this usage means no such thing. In this usage, sting bears the same meaning as goad. The word goad means to prick, denotes a sting, metaphorically, of sin as the sting of death. Reference 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 56. From Vine's Expository Dictionary. The commentary passage associated with Romans 4, verse 15, gives us some help here. First, Romans 4, verse 14 reads, For the law brings wrath, because where there is no law, there is no transgression either. Associated commentary helps us understand this better. Because the law works wrath, that is, this is its effect upon fallen sinful men. It lays God's authority upon their consciences without furnishing the grace needful to enable them to overcome their corrupt passions. Instead of making them holy, therefore, and fit for heaven, it works wrath in two ways. First, by laying duty upon them which they do not perform it becomes the occasion of provoking against them the divine wrath. Secondly, in the same way it fills their minds with a sense of guilt and fearful apprehension of wrath to come. Where no law is, there is no transgression. Were it possible that one should be absolutely without law, he could be guilty of no transgression. And the less clearly the divine law is revealed, the less does it operate to work wrath. Instead of saving those who have violated it and yet seek to be justified by it, the law condemns them, as all men have violated it. None can be saved by it. If the promises were made only to those who should perfectly obey it, all would fail of the blessing. From Family Bible Notes from the Nazarene Users Group. Therein is the reasoning behind Christ coming and dying on the cross. God provided ten laws for man to follow. We proved very quickly that we could not follow what should be a simple set of laws when compared to the many laws found in today's world in just one country, anywhere. The Ten Commandments are God's law. It is alluded to here in commentary by Family Bible Notes that if one could always, without failing once, obey the Ten Commandments, then, and only then, would there be no wrath upon them. However, that is impossible for mankind, especially today, with the incredible drawing power of the things that are sinful. Salvation and forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future, is our only option to avoid the inevitable. That means, without Christ, instead of making them holy, therefore, and fit for heaven, it works wrath in two ways. First, 
by laying duty upon them which they do not perform, it becomes the occasion of provoking against them the divine wrath. Secondly, in the same way, it fills their minds with a sense of guilt and fearful apprehension of wrath to come. That sense of guilt and fearful apprehension of wrath to come should be the motivating factor for us to seek redemption. We find that redemption in Christ, though to many, ironically, it gives people that sense of guilt and fearful apprehension of wrath to come. Notice Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which reads, For the payoff of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Meaning, the wages of sin, its just desert, is death, endless sinning and suffering, eternal life, perfect, endless holiness and bliss. The future misery of the wicked is their just desert, and the future happiness of the righteous is the gracious gift of God, through the merits of Jesus Christ. The sting of death, that which makes death terrible, is sin. The victory over sin, death, and every foe. From the Family Bible Notes from the Nazarene Users Group. Our last verse in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is verse 58, which reads, So then, dear brothers and sisters, be firm. Do not be moved. Always be outstanding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That is the closing verse in this context and chapter. This is the thought we are left with. Remember, when modern people, at the very least, read or listen to something, the one thing they remember best is the last. With that said, what is Scripture telling us to remember? Commentary tells us we have four very important things to take away from this last verse. We are to be steadfast, unmovable in the work of the Lord, and remember, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Commentary further explains, Steadfast in the faith and practice of the gospel, in habitual, lively confidence of the resurrection, the day of judgment, and the retributions of eternity. Unmovable, not discouraged by opposition or difficulties, not led even to doubt about the complete fulfillment of all which God has declared in the work of the Lord, in labors to honor Him and do good. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What you do to honor Christ shall receive a glorious and eternal reward, the certainty of the resurrection, of the day of judgment, and the retributions of eternity should lead all to make it their great object to learn and do the will of God, hearkening daily to His voice, believing heartily His declarations, and obeying cheerfully and preserving His commands. From Family Bible Notes from the Nazarene Users Group
obeying cheerfully and preserving his commands, or obeying cheerfully and to persist in or remain constant to a purpose, idea, or task in the face of obstacles or discouragement. Is that not the way of life here today? Despite the encouragement both in scriptures and commentary, do we nonetheless fail when trying to obey cheerfully and preservingly his commands? Not all the time, but maybe more times of failure than we care to admit. Thank God for his forgiveness to us who are otherwise weak in the things we wish to be strong. In closing, notice this. Brothers and sisters, this is what I mean. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What decays cannot inherit what does not decay. From 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Therein is the reasoning for salvation in this life among other well-founded reasons. It also very succinctly tells us why we need new bodies for our existence in heaven when Christ comes for us to take us home into heaven. It flatly states, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, even if we are saved in Christ here in this life, the body we now live in cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Stated otherwise, we must shed this sinful body despite the fact we are saved in Christ. But first, we must be entirely changed, for such flesh and blood as we are clothed with now cannot enter into the kingdom which is wholly spiritual. Neither does this corruptible body inherit that incorruptible kingdom. From John Wesley's Notes on the Bible. I think that tells us clearly that the body we have now will not be the body we will have when Christ takes us to heaven. Regardless of the condition of this body when we are taken home by Jesus, we will get a new one. What a glorious day that will be for God's fallen and those alive! No more sickness! No more death! Anyone who is crippled here will have a full functioning body without having to relearn how to walk and do other things that here are either very difficult or impossible. In heaven, that will all be gone. What a blessing to look forward to. Next week, are there ways we can know we are in the last days as many on the internet say we can? Are we really in those last days? If so, how can we know that? Again, if so, does our Bible tell us in a way that we can decisively say, yes, we truly are in the last days? Join us next week for our episode titled, The Rapture, A Mystery, A New Thing, Part 7, Signs of the End of the Age. Play or download our episodes from one of our podcast hosts or follow direct links to these platforms on our website under the podcast menu item. Details follow.
All Bible quotes, without a citation, are from the New English Translation Free Version. Also, please check our show notes for links to our website and other information you may want to know. This study podcast is a wholly self-funded outreach presented by the Church of the Unchurched, currently an all-electronic Boston-based outreach uniting the community of lost, searching, lonely, and forgotten in Christ. We greatly appreciate serving our international audience. God bless you all. If you are visiting for the first time, welcome and God bless you. We look forward to the return of all our faithful listeners and new listeners. Thank you all so much. Please share our podcast with family, friends, and others you believe would find it a blessing. If you are unsaved, we truly hope you find God as well as receiving Him as Lord and Savior of your life. Please find a short link to our episode titled, How to Be Saved, at the bottom of any episode description. To learn more about us and who we are, give our episode titled, Introduction, About Us, Who We Are, a listen. In that episode, you will learn more about us, who we are reaching out to, our mission, vision, ministry, and more. Again, a short link to this episode is found at the bottom of any episode description. If you go to our internet homepage, under the podcast menu item, you can find many popular podcast platforms we are found on. So, you should be able to find us on a platform you like. We refresh all our feeds with every weekly episode upload on Sunday's U.S. East Coast time zone. These sites update our feed within 24 hours of our refresh, many sooner than others. Our website is located at this internet address, unchurched.site123.me. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good thing you do or say. Until next week, this is Pastor John for the Church of the Unchurched.